0: Hey everyone, welcome back to The Kibbutz. I just want to announce that we received a generous grant from the Emanuel J. Friedman Philanthropies that will allow us to keep kibbutzing. It's a very cool foundation that does a lot of great work supporting animal welfare, pediatric health, and of course, Jewish arts and culture. So thanks! Every Passover, Jews around the world gather at the dinner table and engage in the Seder ritual. We read from Manischewitz-stained haggadas, telling the story of when the Jews were slaves in ancient Egypt, their exodus and eventual liberation. Today, when I think about bondage and not the fun, kinky, leather Betty Page kind, I cannot help but think of my wristbands. In the early 90s, I spent about 10 years as an educational software producer, which sounds about as dull as it was. I was chained, metaphorically of course, to a desk for many hours every weekday, and sometimes weekends, in the pursuit of user-friendly, bug-free reading comprehension quizzes. After several years of this desk job confinement, I began to develop carpal tunnel syndrome. I saw a few doctors, all of whom suggested that while I worked, I wear supportive wrist braces. So, every morning I'd show up to the office and loosen the three Velcro straps on each of the two black wrist braces that went from the base of my fingers up to my elbows, and then strapped myself in. I can still see them in my mind. I can smell them too. After weeks and months of 10 to 14 hour days wearing these things constantly, you can imagine that they began to take on quite a funk. Someone at the office called them my Darth Vader gloves. I was pretty cool. And then, magically, I was liberated. I was emancipated from my desk and my stinky wrist braces by, bizarrely enough, competitive air guitar. I know it's ridiculous, but air guitar allowed me to write a book, become a journalist, star in a documentary that delivered me to the desert, the South by Southwest Film Festival. It gave me the freedom to cast away the shackles of my Darth Vader carpal tunnel armbands. Of course, I ended up replacing them with sparkly spandex armbands filled with dry ice that fogged when I got on stage. Still nerdy, but for much different reasons. Around Passover, I often think about how we all voluntarily enslave ourselves to our laptops, phones, game consoles, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and to jobs or relationships that aren't particularly fulfilling. So, maybe this episode of The Kibitz will inspire you to think about what enslavement means to you today. Perhaps you'll decide to give up everything and Become a professional air guitarist? If so, email me. I do give lessons. One note, if you're looking for advice on a good Hagada to use this Passover, and I know you are, we've put an excellent list on our Episode 5 webpage, so find that at kibitzpod.com. How is this episode of The Kibbutz different from all other episodes? Well, obviously it is a Passover episode, but we've got a great excerpt from a fascinating conversation about Jews and superheroes that took place between Rabbi Sharon Browse of Ekar in Los Angeles, author Jonathan Lethem, and television writer-producer Damon Lindelof. There's another installment of Casher vs. Kasher. My 95-year-old Nana tells some Passover jokes, and Rana of Rana and Beverly gets some amazing Seder advice from one of our listeners. So, don't pass over this opportunity to listen to the Kibbutz. Separately, they are Rabbi David Kasher and comedian Moshe Kasher. Together, on the kibbutz, these two brothers will debate Passover. This is Kasher vs. Kasher. Passover is upon us, and uh, we're going to talk about sort of Exodus and the whole idea of the Exodus story and, and how that's such a... I mean, it's it, for me, it's my favorite Jewish holiday, I think because it's built around food and, and eating uh, and maybe that's why so many Jews love it but why is it why is it so important? Well it's important
1: all, all of the songs on Legend are important but I would say that that one in particular because of some of the trippier stuff that it does like if you're high and you listen to that movement, move, 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 this move. This is like rave humor. Yeah. Yeah. Rave humor. This is Bob yeah. Marley, brother. It's yeah. No, movement uh, of oh, okay. people. Oh, job people, dude. Um,
2: it's just, you started to go, go, go kind of at the end. <laughs> no,
1: it's uh,
0: forget. He's such a square. He's got See, that this cool is, like clap sound. Let me, <laughs> if I could recommend not
1: having a rabbi in the family. Let me just go ahead. Let me just and, talk about how important
2: Passover. I think you're right that, I mean, not just that it's your favorite holiday. You're right about that. But. But also, it, it, it probably is fair to say that it is the most important Jewish holiday uh, because it it really is the foundation holiday for everything else. And it's also true that, you know, I was just talking to a colleague of mine um, the other day and I and I asked her, so what do you think is the most important book in the in the in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible? And, and it, it was like as soon as I asked it, we realized it was kind of a joke. Like there's really no there's really no like comparison to the book of Exodus. It's, it's by far the most important book we have. It's even more than Genesis, even more like, because it is,
1: it is the story of how we became a people. So that's that was the joke was this discussion of. So let me just say the difference between the jokes among the discussions with rabbis. I didn't say it was a joke. You said it was kind of a joke. Because oh yeah, yeah, it was laughable. Yeah, it was laughable. <laughs> it was funny, <laughs> right? In a it's way, like funny to our When you yeah. think about like two rabbis, like I mean, this book, <laughs> it's gotta be, it's gotta be Exodus. Come get out of here. You think about the sophisticated jokes that me and my friend make. Like, Most what's the, the best book. way to describe a ding dong? Like, if you're like you. know, what's the best the sort of liter- literative language to describe a, a big old wiener? I mean, what I do, I feel like is a holy, a holy thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I'll leave it to your listeners to decide who has the more meaningful conversations in the family, but go ahead and
1: don't send us that, uh, your thoughts on that. Cause I don't want to hear, <laughs> I don't need that abuse.
2: No, but the point is that like the the, 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 story of Passover is the story of the book of Exodus. And that's the story of how we became a people. And than how we kind of you know were were freed as a people and how we received our our mission as a people. I mean everything is in that book. It really is the foundation for our whole our whole religion in a certain sense and our whole identity.
0: But that's not what we're. We're not reading the Book of Exodus at the Passover Seder. We've got the Maxwell House Haggadah.
2: No, and, and, the, and that in a way is I mean love the Haggadah. love a, Maxwell House.
1: Yeah. I mean it's, <laughs> it's a great cup great of coffee. To, <laughs> but work
3: great together. A,
2: it, the Haggadah is obviously like a part of our traditional liturgy, but it, in a way, it's unfortunate mm-hmm. that we've that it's become so firmly established as a as a as a as a practice to read through it because really, there's this idea that you're on Passover you're supposed to tell the story of leaving Egypt to tell a story. And that story is really in the book of Exodus. I mean, the Haggadah is actually not a great way to tell that story. I mean, it's a beautiful series of, of storytelling kind of uh, snippets, but it isn't really
1: that it doesn't have that Epic feel that the book of, of Exodus does. Well, I mean, I think one thing is that, about Passover and that supersedes the flaws of the Haggadah is that Passover continues to re-relevantize itself because of the long march of history is filled with replays of great injustice, great slavery, and, and escape from, the, from that kind of oppression. All you have to do is literally look at Syria, which is not very far from Egypt, to say, wow, there's another people that are in, in, under the yoke of oppression who are trying to get free.
2: Yeah, right. it's like a crazy thing to think about the fact that the Jewish origin story, our sort of peoplehood story, begins in this really terrible place. Like you, you might wonder why we would celebrate or choose to to highlight this story that really speaks of our disgrace. And you know, yet I think as Moshe is pointing out, there's a way in which that is a that's a that's a one of the the the, the basic human stories is this sort of attempt to to up to uplift out of like real oppression. I and mean, that's, 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 that's ubiquitous. That's part of who we are.
0: In a way it's, uh, you know, the America, you know, the United States origin story is escaping oppression and this sort of exodus from, from, uh, Great Britain and whatnot. Well, um, I mean,
1: Salt Lake city, you know, the Mormons, <laughs> they, they straight up think of themselves as engaged in a literal exodus story uh, yeah. like literally, they marched through the desert with their leader, escaping the persecution to go to the promised land. they call you know, Salt Lake City Zion. and, um, you know, so they literally see themselves as exactly the same as us. And yeah, and I mean, you know, and obviously the the, the
2: African American experience has had, and narrative has drawn heavily, you know, since uh, the times of slavery. Uh, on through the civil rights movement has drawn heavily from the imagery of the book of exodus of you know let my people go and yeah. um, and there's you know it's no coincidence i mean this is an incredibly powerful and universal story even as it is our particular story and one of the one of the sort of the beauties of history is that now at many passover satyrs we jews turn and reference the african-american experience as right. sort of an inspiration to our own notions of of what it means to to think, to
1: reflect on liberation, sort of come full circle in that way. And in another full circle, like the three groups that you think of when you think of cool, you know, like the cool people are like definitely the Jews, you know, poets and beatniks, beat poets and stuff, philosophers, uh, African-Americans, you know, uh, and the Mormons, of course, you <laughs> yes. think of them. It's like the, yeah. just the coolest dude. I wasn't even the third was going to be, but yeah, that's, yeah that yeah, is yeah. the <laughs> obvious third. Just yeah. the, the swinging hip, yeah. hip cats of Shout Salt yeah. Lake. I you mean, know, uh, right? Mitt Romney is. Oh, Mitt Romney couldn't be cooler. Couldn't Shout out to all
2: of my African American and Mormon brothers.
1: Yeah, that's right. And yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. From a social justice perspective, if that's what you're into, uh, it there it couldn't be a more meaningful holiday it just don't make a more meaningful holiday that is exactly applicable to current modalities of social justice um and in terms of cook uh coconut based cookies they also couldn't make a more applicable for those, holiday like, for those two things those a, are the two primary yeah, right yeah, yeah like yeah. if you're a, if you are a social justice warrior or a macaroon warrior like either of those things this is the holiday for you there's personal liberation that is also relevant to this holiday i mean the
2: the Hasidic movement especially took Passover and and turned it into a kind of inner liberation holiday so you know when we do this Seder Moshe and I every year we begin the Seder often talking about like the ways in which we feel uh enslaved or see kind of bondage in the world and some of those are looking out and seeing terrible tragedies in the kind of the global society and some of them are just you know I feel enslaved by my job, or I feel enslaved by my bad habits, or I feel enslaved by my relationship to technology, you know? And thats I think that's a relevant uh, way to engage with this this theme of liberation uh, th- that is part of the holiday as well.
0: But where did the tradition of using a, a Haggadah, which I realize I've been mispronouncing, um, where did that come from? And, like, when, did, I mean, why do we...
1: Moshe well i had a i had a professor in college that said this is a very controversial theory that basically passover you know was always just celebrated kind of the way the way david is describing it in history you know because it says remember the passover story or whatever so basically people would get gather around a table they would eat a bunch of cookies and they would talk about the story and then uh, what started to happen was Christianity uh, came into being and it became incredibly popular in the regions of Judaism. It was existent and they had these like Easter kind of like analogous holidays. And basically, this was my professor's theory. Judaism was losing ground to Christianity. And it was this great uh, sort of unctuous Force of existential uh, uh, angst. And so the rabbis slapped together this kind of flawed document just to have a codified sort of book, which is why it makes very little sense and kind of jumps all over the place and is kind of crazy because it was really sort of slapdash thrown together. And that's, which I don't think is a disrespect to the document. I think it's kind of quaint and cute. But David has never quite agreed with that.
2: No, I mean, I think that, look, what I will say about you know how did it get into the form that that it is, which is a little confusing. Is that if you look at the Haggadah, it's not so much, as I said before, uh, the story of the Exodus of leaving Egypt. What it is is actually a kind of a collection of various storytelling methods. So you have just stories about people telling stories, or ways to tell the story. It's more like a reflection on storytelling. And on, on that level, it's a very cool document. It's sort of a catalog of. Jewish ideas of how you might tell the story. Do you tell it with statistics or do you tell it with um, uh, hyperbole or do you tell it with metaphor? Do you tell it with symbols? There's there's lots of different ways to tell the story, but you'll even have passage in the Haggadah. Oh, these these four rabbis were sitting around telling the story of Egypt. So it's really a reflection on our tradition of telling the story. And that's a cool thing. I just still think that, be that as it may, we we have to kind of own the tradition and tell the story ourselves.
0: I mean, it feels like there's a million different uh, varieties of haggadah out out there. I mean, is there one that you know of that you like, or do you just you just don't use them at all?
2: It's a good question. Yeah, I mean, there are so many that it's it's really hard to pick one. I I think it's kind of like the colored Hanukkah candles. I I have a like a I have a a weakness just for the. The, the kitschy classic. So I actually do like the Maxwell House Haggadah, just because it just reminds me of a certain aesthetic that is both like beautiful and corny all at once. Uh-huh. Um, but there's, you know, there's always great new haga- Haggadot that are that are being released. There's there's this great one, uh, the New American Haggadah, um, that was uh, put out by Jonathan Safran Foer
1: and, um, oh, yeah. or edited by him. And uh, you can kind of pick your poison, right? There's like the you know, humanist Haggadah. There's like the, you know, pro-Palestinian Haggadah, the pro-Israeli Haggadah, the humanist, the secular, the no-God version. There's actually an anti- a great anti-Semitic Haggadah that I would recommend. Uh, it's really, it's written by people that hate Jews, but love the tradition.
0: <laughs> so what do you do, at, like at your Seder, how do you bring more of the Exodus story into the Seder? Or is that, or is that what you do?
2: we try and start with bondage and end with freedom. So we start with like a reflection on things that we're struggling with. Yeah. I'll
1: actually, I have this little like bondage pony that I will bring out. she's like a sex slave. It's, a it's long, always a weird moment. It's a weird moment for sure. Cause my mom's there, things, yeah. but she's like, it's fully very consensual. It's very actively consensual, but, uh, but it doesn't, uh, it's very disturbing. Uh, yeah. She's it's, in, it's, I would say it's <laughs> disturbing. Yeah. yeah Even so, hearing you make this joke right now is like, right. I've, I feel uncomfortable. It's not a joke in any <laughs> yeah. way. And I'll pull her out from the basement and she clops out in her horse outfit and then I'll unzip her right. mouth and she'll wow. say, uh, let really all real- who are hungry c- come and eat uh, and let all who desire uh, ride the pony. And then everybody gets a turn riding on the pony. And, <laughs> pony. Yeah. Anyway, you know, it's, play that a, it, song? it's a very uh, contemporary, it, very, uh, very uh, contemporary Seder. Well,
0: um, I would love to come over to your house. No, but there. then, then part, once
2: yeah. we, once we sort of frame <laughs> it with the, uh, with the slavery freedom kind of. Um, movement. Then we just sort of start. Uh, we do the blessings, or some classic blessings, and then when we get to the point that's called Magid, where you tell a story, you know, w- what we try and do is just say, well, where does this begin? Like, what's mm-hmm. a where? Where do you start the Exodus story? And you know, sometimes we'll prompt it, or sometimes somebody else at the table will say. And and it's interesting. It could begin in a lot of different places. You could say, well, we were slaves in Egypt, or you could say, well, doesn't it really start with Abraham? Or you could say, well, in a certain sense, doesn't it start with like the the, the creation itself, like, isn't it you know, like, it, this sort of depends on where you want to begin the story. But then we sort of slowly try and reconstruct what, you know, what this is all about, this sort of movement into Egypt and slavery and then this movement out of
1: out of it. And what does it mean to be free, too, is another, I think, thing. And, you know, where, where does our journey as Jews end? in terms of our commitment to justice and freedom, where does it end? You know, it's definitely a moment for everybody to sit around and say, are we doing all we can to bring freedom into the world? Are we, are we being the thing that we have? Are we giving the gift that we were given
2: when we left? Egypt? And, and everything in between as well, you know, between the, the exodus and the, the the second kind of return to, to mm-hmm. Israel or third return to Israel in Jewish history, there there's this, you know, long, unfortunate history of, of real wandering and suffering, right. you know, like we went into great at the end of the Torah we enter into the land of, of Israel, but then we're exiled from it. And we spend much of our history kind of reliving a lot of these, these themes of oppression, unfortunately. And, and so the uh, Passover has just always, always been relevant to us and, and the need for, for not just freedom, but for some force outside of ourselves that can perhaps, you know, we can call out to it, that could redeem us, that could liberate us. That's that's a yearning
1: the Jewish people have always had. In that way, it's the perfect holiday. It involves um, great food, l- great luxury, getting drunk, themes yeah. that are relevant to you, personal growth, and my my little sex pony. And I got to tell you, <laughs> she, she coughs like it. nobody else. Oh, my God. I think we... <laughs> gotta end there
0: yeah well i again i look forward to uh, receiving my invitation to your passover and uh, i'll 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 bring my leather great (laughs) okay Okay. see
1: you there all right
0: thanks guys thanks for uh kibitzing
1: thank you for having (laughs) us thank you
0: A few months ago, I attended a talk between the amazing Rabbi Sharon Browse from ECAR in Los Angeles, Jonathan Lethem, author of numerous books including Motherless Brooklyn and The Fortress of Solitude, and writer-producer Damon Lindelof, who created the TV shows Lost, yes, Lost, and The Leftovers on HBO. Rabbi Sharon opened the talk by asking... What is the fascination with superheroes that has taken over American pop culture for a century? And what's the particularly Jewish connection to it? I thought the conversation was not only incredibly interesting, but very relevant to Passover because of the discussion of our dual identity as Jews. I mean, at various points in history, Jews were oppressed slaves in Egypt. And at other points, we were successful writers and Hollywood producers, aka superheroes. So... Here's Rabbi Sharon, Jonathan Lethem, and Damon Linden.
4: Thank you both for taking the time to come out um, and have dinner with me and then and sit here and, and schmooze for a little bit about Jews and superheroes. So <laughs> it seems that almost all of the early superhero creators were Jews, um, many of them Jewish depression era kids who were struggling with their own sense of um, of, of vulnerability, of weakness um, in the early 30s and then later as the Holocaust sort of gripped Europe in uh, an ever greater urgency to attach themselves to a fantastic vision of what real power might look like. Um, and so and so many of these uh, writers were Jewish, but also a lot of the themes are very Jewish. And that's one of the things that I'd like for us to be able to talk about um, a little bit as we go on. Um, and now, obviously, the two of you who are seen as kind of heirs to this uh, to the um, the legacy that that a lot of these great writers have have laid out before? I wonder if you can talk just a little bit, um, brief us about what you see the connection between this genre and uh, and the and our Jewish shared Jewish heritage and tradition.
3: So for me, that's Jonathan Lethem. I quickly figured out that the Marvel comics that I thought were cooler, and these are the characters that now happen to dominate our culture. You know. Um, Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, and and Thor and Hulk, for whatever reason, that kit of images and ideas uh, seemed much hipper and more my own. The Marvel comics were written and made in New York City, not just by uh, immigrant Jews, aspirant, you know, lower middle class, uh, second generation guys, but they referred to New York City and to that experience. You know, Spider-Man was from Queens and, and, uh, the thing from the Fantastic Four came from a neighborhood from Yancy Yancy Street. Street. And there were, there were these like references to the city that I was living in that seemed very knowing and very urbane and very, uh, Insider-ish,
5: and it was New York. There is no New York and in in uh, DC. (coughs) That's right.
3: They always used a kind of generic analog, Uh Gotham or Metropolis. But here it really was New York City, and so these guys, you know, Jack Kirby, who you know had renamed himself, uh, and Stan Lee, who'd renamed himself. You know, these were like guys who I could relate to. They were like my uncles making comic books, and i didn 't have to figure that out. I could just absorb it as, a, as a, like a sensory piece of information that there was something familiar and funny and, um, and and tribal about the the gang of guys and the way they felt about American life that they were having fantasies about it, but they were also um, not completely inside it and I mean, it 's not so different in a way from the way that you know, Jews created the Hollywood image that became classical Hollywood. Uh, In so many ways, you know, it was about fantasizing about an American ideal or an American, uh, you know, uh, dream, an idealization that was not completely accessible to the people who were making it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, you could think in a way that Cary Grant is a superhero. You know, his lines being written by Jewish guys who can't be Cary Grant and his, his scenes being directed, you know, by Jewish guys who can't be Cary Grant. Well, you know, Superman is another version of that. I I think that I had a a
5: very similar, um, similar experience and and trajectory. And
0: that's Damon Lindelof.
5: You know, for me, it was, was Spidey, but then also the Mm, Um, X-Men. And I, and I think that for those of you who are unfamiliar with the x-men the x-men are mutants so they are uh, unlike the superheroes in the in the DC universe who uh, and and Spidey is uh, is an outlier on the Marvel Universe but this idea of you get your powers in some kind of like freak accident like you're bit by a radioactive spider so or uh, Superman was obviously uh, from another planet but the mutants are kind of born with their powers and many of them are burdened by them and so this idea of superheroes as, as uh individuals who were suffering Um, became very accessible to the pre-adolescent and then adolescent brain. So this idea of like, Wolverine, he's the coolest guy in the world. He can make claws come out of his hands, but he was suffering. It's an affliction. you know, uh, Because he couldn't remember who he was and he had been designed to be a weapon. And here's this guy, Cyclops, who basically has to wear glasses all the time or else he'll melt, you know, he'll blast you across the room. And um, here's uh, this woman, Jean Grey, and she can read your thoughts. And boy, wouldn't that be cool? No, it's not.
0: Here, Jonathan chimed in to talk about how the original superheroes all had sidekicks. Superman had Jimmy Olsen. Shazam had Billy Batson. uh, Batman, for better or worse, had Robin. Originally, these sidekicks served as surrogates for the suffering and afflicted teenage reader.
3: The real transformation that happens then when you get to Spider-Man and the X-Men, along with the sense of them being afflicted, is they are the teenager. It, you know, I mean, Spider-Man's affliction isn't only his powers, it's also that he's unpopular in high school. And, and I think something else
5: bears mentioning in regards to that which is they have to start wearing masks in the Marvel universe. Um, this idea of wearing a mask is really to conceal one's own identity um, for a variety of reasons. One is I don't want anyone to see the real me. But right. then there's also this sort of sense of shame or a of potentially endangering. That's always like the number one reason. Which is I, I, if you knew that who I really was, you know, Green Goblin, you could come after Mary Jane. If you knew that Peter Parker was Spider-Man. But I do think that this idea. Of the, of the secret identity is is is
3: um, is very specific to Judaism, um, well, uh, and, and passing. But you can also um, extend it because in the, I mean, Superman and Batman have got secret identities, but they're kind of cursory. And The reason they're cursory, you know, I mean, um, is that their intrinsic identity is Superman and Batman. Clark Kent is a kind of a joke or a pretense, and Bruce Wayne is a callow millionaire who doesn't bother to have any redeeming b- virtues, or any real n- needs, he's just a playboy, because his real self is Batman. That's where he's fulfilling his, his true identity. Mm-hmm. When you get to the later characters, in a way, Peter Parker is the real, the real person, and Spider-Man is something he's trying to be, and is afraid, you know, he's like a, f- he's, he, Spider-Man is the pretense. Spider-Man is, a, is an attempt at something. and. You know, you could almost look at this increased vulnerability of the secret identity, the willingness to be more conflicted and vulnerable, as being like the equivalent of like that now Dustin Hoffman can be the movie star, right? You know, instead of instead of Cary Grant, right? We could, or you know, it's almost like uh, like the Philip Roth moment. The Jewish establishment is so angry at, at Philip Roth for embarrassing them, and he's like, "This is come on, let's just we, we can we can we can be this vulnerable thing now."
4: In the origin stories, there's, I mean, it seems to me that there's a tremendous amount of trauma for many of them in their childhood, in their past, and this is very much a part of the Jewish story. And, and I, I mean, I very much believe that someone could survive the Holocaust and very justifiably come out hating humanity and wanting only to care for and protect and sustain his or her own. And someone could survive the Holocaust and come out loving humanity and feeling that life is a gift and wanting to do everything in his or her power to protect and save people because nobody fought to save my family. And so it it seems like there are two legitimate responses to trauma. Um, I mean, there are many but um, but there are two primary responses to trauma and and the character of a person is essentially what do you choose to do with your with your suffering and I want I wonder if you could reflect a little bit I mean it, many of the many of the women of the female superheroes and villains have sexual assault in their past many of the male superheroes lost their parents or witnessed some awful trauma firsthand can you talk about that decision point between what makes somebody a hero and what makes somebody a villain and the role that the traumatic experience of their past might play in that
3: yeah I mean I think managing trauma is in the embedded in in the, the, the most compelling stories over and over and over again. The figure I, I I am endlessly fascinated by is Jack Kirby. He's the guy who created the majority of the Marvel characters in that, you know, so, somebody else may have had the, the claim of having named them or written their dialogue, but in the sense that we receive them in their innate quality. He drew them and characterized them and built their 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 realities and and Kirby was a was a World War II, a Jewish guy who went to to the front in Germany and and I mean he killed Nazis with his bare hands and he liberated a camp. Mm-hmm. And when he came back, he creates these characters who are um again and again, you know, I mean the Fantastic beginning with the Fantastic Four, they become tribes of Outcasts who have to man- simultaneously manage their responsibility to protect others and the sense of persecution, and he keeps upping the ante. You know, the first group he creates, the Fantastic Four, are relatively legitimated. You know, like they have a building in Manhattan, and their 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 most responsible member a, seems to have a healthy relationship with the authorities, and so forth. But then it's as though that doesn't satisfy him. He needs to create a band that's more hunted and more conflicted. And so the X-Men are the next group and they kind of can't, you know, they can't manage their relationship to humanity and they're persecuted. But they also have the responsibility of protecting everyone. And then he, you know, he like ups the ante with another group called the, the Inhumans who are even more monstrous and more responsible. And the ultimate character in the Inhumans is a guy named Black Bolt who literally can't say a word aloud because his voice will destroy everything. And he's the leader of this group and has to manage knowing too much, You know, having a thing that can't be pronounced. There's a couple ways of looking at it. Spider-Man's origin,
5: we all know that he was bitten by a radioactive spider and that's how he got his abilities, but it never occurred to him to fight crime. His first instinct was, I'm going to use this ability to make money. Um, I'm going to monetize this skill and I'm going to wrestle. Um, and, uh, and only as a result of uh, a fracas that he, he, makes a de- he makes a decision. He sees that a, a thief is basically making off with like some money after one of these wrestling matches where he's beaten this poor normal person in, in a submission. And he, makes, he decides not to stop that thief. He's like, why would I stop this guy? I'm not going to stick my neck out for this guy. And that thief ends up shooting his Uncle Ben who has basically sort of gifted him with this, this proverb, like with great power comes great responsibility. So Spider-Man's origin story is guilt. It literally is guilt. He, he is only superheroing because he feels guilty. There's no greater call. There's no. There's no sense of, you know, I'm going to be a hero and this is the right thing to do.
4: You know, one of the things that I that I've been really wrestling with the past several years, is is this power and powerlessness. uh, Is this sort of paradox of power. On one hand, we have the capacity to do absolutely extraordinary, previously unimaginable things in the world, and yet it seems like we cannot solve the most basic human needs. We can't figure out how to address uh, the most basic concerns about safety, about community, about health. Um, so, and, and about about equality of opportunity, I'm I'm really interested in hearing what your thoughts are about some of these characters who you guys grew up, you know, knowing intimately and loving. I mean, are they are are they, and are we in our relationship with them ultimately more powerful, or were we ultimately admitting to our own sort of failure as human beings to own the power that we might have, and instead turning it over to these? to these other fantastic creatures that they might be able to do the job for us.
5: Ultimately, really what it comes down to is that the draw isn't just superhuman abilities or superpowers or origin stories or, or our ability to, to relate to these people. It is These are good versus evil stories, and the, and the line is very clean you know, and we are living in a world where the line is is, is is more and more confusing. Like this idea that every person is capable of what we would call evil, um, that we all feel, feel that, you know, that, that there, there is moral ambiguity in terms of what you would do to protect your family. Um, uh, like I am anti-death penalty until I'm uh, until some, some horrific fate has, has uh, befallen someone that I love and then I'm like, you know, lethal injection all the way. So this idea of like, we're constantly struggling with this idea of what is good and what is evil and these characters don't, you know, at least, um, you know, the fundamental sort of draw of them is like, Wolverine may be nuanced, but he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. He always does the right thing. And I think that it is ultimately this this idea of there is no... There is no storytelling that is more focused on this idea of, you know, of good versus evil than the superhero mythos.
3: I mean, I, I think, I think of, uh, a lot about the emblem of the superhero as uh, the image of the creative individual. When I, when I picked it up to use it in, in um, The Fortress of Solitude, I was throwing it into, into, into juxtaposition with these... People who were in various kind of um, impure, expressive relationships to culture. The graffiti artist who's both famous and a secret. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing about desiring and identifying to be Superman is the first thing you think is, oh, it's great. I'll be the most famous person on earth and for good things. Mm -hmm. Everyone will know me and celebrate me. But the very next thing the superhero does is become tormented adolescent who hides Mm -hmm. Even Superman has his, you know, why does Superman need the Fortress of Solitude? This is the strangest th- thing that someone so ostensibly healthy and positive should want to go and walk around and talk to statues of his friends instead of being with them.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: But even Superman contains this doubleness where this, the, the famous and celebrated and just justifiable, perfect being has a, 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 another model of uh furtiveness, guilt uh diffidence, you know evasion secrecy, and so it's it's mm-hmm. very strange how one always is giving way to the other
5: mm-hmm. it, it, and it's lonely and it, it's interesting that you were just saying that because i've never th- really thought before about the urge you know like if I was banksy i'd be like, boy, that banksy's pretty great, huh like He's pretty cool, huh? Like the the urge to just let people know you're Banksy has got to be so overwhelming and and but but the idea of knowing the curse that's on the other side
6: of it. Yeah. So
4: after Moshe after Moses goes up the you know up to the mount to the top of the mountain and has this you know this very intense intimate experience with God. So when Moses comes down he has to put a mask on also and um, because people can't bear to see him as radiant as he is now hmm. and so he lifts the mask when he has to and then he puts the mask back down immediately and lifts the mask when he encounters god in the tent and then puts it back down because people can't, he needs something to there has to be something in between him and the people because he 's too powerful and there 's also and so it, 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 the experience of connectedness with something greater than him also prevents him from fully connecting with the people with the very people he 's called to serve. OK, I know you have a lot of questions, so i 'm going to do a quick rapid fire is, is Harry Potter kind of a superhero Oh
5: absolutely yeah I mean well he it, you know he, he functions by the same rules as yeah. the, as the typical mythic hero where you know he he has a uh, a lineage that has been hidden from him mm-hmm. he is an orphan um and he has a you know another part of the of the superhero uh mythos um that uh s- uh, is certainly more in vogue today is the, you know, is the idea of destiny or pro, uh, mm-hmm. some sort of, and this is much more biblical, is the idea of like prophecy, where right, it's like right. Harry Potter is the boy who lived, and his destiny is to basically, uh, he killed Voldemort, but if Voldemort should ever rise again, he's, and Harry Potter, in the first book, he's like, he's, a, I don't think, a 10 or 11-year-old kid, or it's, he's about to turn mm-hmm. 11, and when he walks around on the street, People will sometimes recognize him and be like, "Oh my God, Harry Potter, you're amazing!" And he's like, he doesn't know I, I don't, why. I don't yet. know yeah. why that is." Yeah. I'll say something else about Harry Potter, which I think bears mentioning here, which is um, there's something very exclusionary about the magicing universe, which is if you are non-magical, you are not allowed to go to Hogwarts. So. You know, so that idea of you have to be born magical—it's not something that you can learn. Mm-hmm. And it's possible for you to have two parents who are non-magical, but they are not allowed to like come and visit you at Hogwarts. Well, like, it really is the yeah. X-Men. It yeah. works exactly yeah. the same yeah. way. So there is this idea of being chosen, you know, mm-hmm. um, of of having these innate abilities, but. The but price. with
4: no intro to Judaism class,
5: correct? There's yes. no conversion path, but, right? But and there's a price, and there, you know, it's a blessing and a curse too. And I think that idea of like, oh my God, I'm magic, right. Right, right? on the heels of that is, and people are going to be trying to kill you constantly. Yes, you know. So I was given these messages in equal portions at Passover, which is you are chosen, and because you are chosen, people will be trying to kill you constantly. Right. Um, right. And you know uh you can you can yeah. you can't have it uh you have to have it both ways
4: you're also in this world where you look like everybody else but you're different and when it comes down to it people can determine whether you're the same or different okay well, just to close um I want to, there, there's something called the Heroic Imagination Project, and I thought it would be an interesting way for us to close because it kind of ties together a lot of the themes we've been talking about, but it's, a, I don't know if any of you have heard about a new nonprofit um, organization that effect, that essentially, it was, it was created by um, Philip Zimbardo, who's the same person who did the Stanford Prison Experiments, and what he said was that after many years of studying why people don't step forward to act heroically, um, why we would more likely be bystanders and let something awful happen in front of us particularly the more people there are watching the less likely we are to engage instead he wanted to try to figure out what it would take to actually cultivate a hero instinct and it's very, it's really interesting um, so and and so part of what he comes to is that people have to start to see themselves as heroes in order to be able to step up and act like heroes when the moment actually comes and I think this is something that we try to that I try to teach about and speak about a lot in Jewish context is that there's this notion that, which I first learned from from Dr. Barry Goldstein, who's here tonight, um, that this sort of waving a flag in front of you saying moral conundrum ahead, you're going to have an opportunity to do something and your whole life could be judged on it. Will you act like a villain or a bystander or a hero? Will you actually step up and engage properly? And it seems like what he's saying is it's essentially muscle memory, That if we imagine ourselves to be superheroes, eventually we'll be given the opportunity to engage heroically, and our bodies will, and our and our our spirits will kick in, and we'll be able to actually um, act like heroes. So I want to just put it out there, and sort of offer it as a as a kind of closing thought for us. Um, that perhaps and I mean we're not just sort of watching these images on the screen but actually called to on some deeper level start to you know not wait for Superman or Batman or Spider-man but actually begin to take on some of the some of the heroics ourselves and hopefully it would help lead us to engage more courageously and more actively when we see the the, the injustices that happen around us all too often so um, I want to I want to thank you so much I'm really grateful to both of you you um,
0: Now, here's my 95-year-old Nana to tell some truly Borscht Belt-worthy Passover jokes. We are recording now. Hi, Nana.
6: Hi, Dan.
0: (laughs) Um, All right, so so you said you had a Passover joke for us?
6: Well, I think, yeah, I have a good Passover joke for you. Passover was coming up, and... uh, this Hasidic rabbi in uh, New York, in Brooklyn, um, they had run out of uh, horseradish, which is known as, in the Jewish word, as cr- crane. So he said, Oh, my, I'll call my favorite friend and rabbi in Madrid, Rabbi Eliezer. And he said, Rabbi Eliezer, I'm having a terrible problem. I can't. They sold out all the grain here in uh, Brooklyn and all the people from our Hasidic temple are, are coming for Passover dinner and I don't have any grain for the gefilte fish. So the Rabbi Eliezer said, don't worry, Rabbi. You'll have it. Don't worry. So Passover comes and goes and there's no grain. So... Rabbi called. He said, "Rabbi Eliezer, we never got any crane." The rabbi said, "Oh, I'm so sorry." He said, "We had this terrible, terrible thunderstorm and rain in Madrid, so the crane from Spain stayed mainly on the plane." <laughs> you like that? That's pretty good. Every Passover in this Jewish home, there was a sign on top of the embroidered on the toilet seat cover that said, let my people go. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Was there
0: another, did you have another Passover joke? You said you maybe had one more.
6: I'd just tell another joke.
0: Oh, you can just tell another joke. Well, yeah.
6: yeah. Uh, this lovely couple were just ready to go to sleep, and the husband said, Good night, wonderful mother of six. And she turned over and said, Good night, wonderful father of one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hope that never happens to me.
0: That's, awesome. I know. that's all you know. I, don't, I know that's not true. Right. I know you may, know many jokes about yeah. All right, well, thanks for kibitzing, uh with us, Nana. You're a huge hit. Everybody loves you. Say hi to all your fans. I certainly will. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Rana of the comedic duo of Rana and Beverly asking for advice about her upcoming Seder. Hello? Hi, is this Dan? Yes, it is. Hi, Dan. You're on with uh, Rana and the Kibbets.
7: And you and you're on with Dan oh, as well. Oh, and with me too. The the Dan. I mean, Dan I'm Crane, also here. Yeah. the host of the Kibbets The host of the Kibbets. How are you, Dan?
8: I'm great. It's nice to hear you.
7: Where are we reaching you?
8: Uh, I work in Irvine, uh, California. Oh. So I'm uh, here at my office.
7: So, what are you doing in Irvine?
8: I, I'm uh, a lawyer.
7: You're a lawyer. Uh,
8: working uh, for, uh, yeah.
7: What kind of what kind what's your specialty? Yeah,
8: we do uh, homeowners associations. Oh. And um, so if
7: I was having there's trouble, there's
8: a whole with, bunch of them out here in Orange County.
7: If I was having trouble with my co-op board, you could help. Absolutely. <laughs> I bet there are a lot of yeah. homeowners. There's a lot of de- in California, people don't really understand, but the, there's a lot of developments. People live in developments, and so there's probably quite a bit of yeah, home, they share. homeowners. Yeah. yeah. It's tough whenever you share anything.
8: They share big tools yeah. and. Yeah.
7: yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, They're like
8: little kibbutz for, uh, you know, with Americans. For and, rich uh, goys. Not so much ideology. <laughs> yeah.
7: <laughs> <laughs> the kibbutz is for rich boys, is what they are. Um, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> well, it's so wonderful to hear your voice. I'm sorry that Beverly's not with us right now. She's in Israel teaching, teaching, and I use so the, the word lightly. Yeah. Teaching English as a second language <laughs> to people. Who can't speak the first language. So she's teaching Russians who can't speak Hebrew. She's teaching them English. I can't explain. If I could explain it to you, I would. But that's what she told me. Uh, so, Dan, I have a question for you. So every year I do a gorgeous seder, of course. And I have, you know, some years it's 17, some years it's 12. It's it sort of depends on who's around. And I just, I make a beautiful table. I have a gorgeous seder plate, of course. But... Part and parcel of having a big seder like that is that you need to have help in the kitchen. And so I have always traditionally had Yadvina stay on Passover. And, you know, I pay her, I pay her very well for her services and pay her extra on a, a day like that because she's already been at the house. But my question is, does it sort of fly in the face of the, of the Pesachic message that I am – there's a lot of contradictions here because on the one hand, it's the day you're supposed to relax. So if you're supposed to – which, excuse me, if you know someone that can relax when they're having 17 people for dinner, I'd like, I'd like to meet them. <laughs> but <laughs> on the one hand, you're supposed to relax. On the other hand, you're not supposed to perpetuate slavery. And I understand Yadvina is being paid for his services. But there does seem to be a fine line there. I'm wondering where you fall on this issue.
8: I'd say it's clear. It's, uh, you know, my legal background would definitely put me <laughs> on. Uh, it's, uh, this is not servitude. This is uh, well, it's a contract. And uh, if she's busy, uh, there's not going to be retaliation. And, uh, you know, she makes the decision.
7: But technically, so I, shouldn't I be inviting her? I don't think, I that, mean, uh, I, I I don't think it's something to- you
8: should feel guilty about.
7: But you don't think technically I should be inviting her, especially as a refugee from the Ukraine, yeah. uh, I should be inviting her to have a seat at the table, which I'll be honest with you, Dan, I don't want to have dinner with Yadvina. No, you don't. I don't mind everything else that I'm doing with Yadvina, <laughs> but I don't want to have dinner with her.
8: No. I, tell you the, I tell you the truth, I think she'd rather get paid. I mean, uh, uh-huh. yeah, it's, it's uh, overtime.
7: Yeah, yeah that's You pay true. her overtime. Yeah, yeah. I do. I pay. For, get, do, does she I get pay to for the guilt.
0: D- does she get leftovers? Can she sure. take the leftovers? Sure.
7: Yeah. I always send people home with leftovers. Yeah. I love to send people home with leftovers. I hate to have leftovers in my own fridge. No. Unless I know someone's going to be there to eat them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'll come by. Now. But I
7: always send. I always send home with it to go. Always. All right. So legally, your opinion <laughs> <Yeah>. is that <laughs> <You're>, she. <laughs> legally, legally, your, your opinion is that she doesn't mind. Yeah. It's a pleasure speaking with you, Dan. Yeah,
0: you have a very loyally uh, authoritative yet soothing voice.
7: Yeah. yeah. Are you from? Where are you from oh, originally? Well,
0: uh,
8: originally from Israel, actually.
7: Oh. Yeah. But so I've you,
8: been in the states so long.
7: So you grew up in, in Israel, and point. then you went to, and then you went to college in Boston.
8: Uh, grad school.
7: Grad school in Boston It was a long
8: path. Yeah. And
7: then, and then you came back to California. You came to California. You settled in Irvine.
8: Settled in L.A., um, and I take the train down to Irvine every day.
7: Oh, you don't live in Irvine?
8: No, no. Oh, Oh, my wife. My wife works in L.A., so uh, we live downtown. I feel so
7: much better now, Dan.
8: Yeah, I thought you
7: lived in Irvine. I thought you came all the way to this country from Israel. to make a life to for be yourself, a slave to in, live in Irvine in Irvine and I got worried about emancipating you I honestly yeah. feel so much better now that I know that you live in LA and that you travel to Irvine for work I'm fine with that yeah no yeah. problem yeah alright well Dan it was nice chatting with you kiss kiss
0: thanks so much kiss kiss bye that is it for episode 5 of The Kibbutz. Please let us know what you think. Give us a like on Facebook follow us on Twitter at KibbutzPod and follow me at Dan Crane here or email us your comments at KibbutzPod at gmail.com and before you dive into that delicious gefilte fish, please consider giving us a review on iTunes I'd like to thank our guests David and Moshe Kasher my nana, Rona Glickman Also, special thanks to Rabbi Sharon, Nicola Davidson, and Ecar for letting me excerpt their superhero conversation. Moshe Kasher will be appearing live May 22nd in Honolulu, Hawaii on his honeymoon tour. You can find David Kasher's podcast on parshanut.com and check out Rana and Beverly's podcast on earwolf.com. This episode was produced by me, Dan Crane, with Adam Sachs, Sarah DeLeo, and David Jargowski. Editing was done by me, and some additional engineering by Brett Morris. Special thanks to Amelia Klein, Robin Kramer, Earwolf, and of course, Reboot. Our main theme music is courtesy of Nous N'en Plus. I also featured some instrumentals on this episode from Ray and Remora, my current band. Our new album is coming out soon, so if you liked any of the music, please check us out on rayandremora.com. And as my great-grandmother used to say, that's the way it is in a small town with a large population. Pesach Sameach from the Kibbutz.